pick whatever your favorite championship team is. Do you think those guys waste time in practice? Uh-uh. They get out there and they are for business because they want to win a Super Bowl. They want to win an NBA championship. They want to win a Stanley Cup. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. My next guest is David Dotson. He's a prominent figure in the business world and a highly esteemed faculty member at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Dotson is really popular for his renowned course at Stanford that has him speaking all over the nation, all over the world. His credentials are truly impressive. He talks about tactical execution. In fact, in 2023, The Economist listed his course as one of the three hottest courses available at Stanford University, and we have him here today. Additionally, David Dotson has served as a board member of over 40 companies, demonstrating his commitment to contributing to various industries. His passion of investing has led him to support and invest in more than 150 businesses. Here with me, I've got David Dodson. We're going to talk about systems, how to hire people, how to run better meetings, how to choose better advisors for your board. And we're going to talk about the Lake Wobegon effect. It's the first time I've ever heard of it. This is a fun one. Very informative. Hang in there. Let's go. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a Success Magazine podcast. And today I've got David Dotson. He's got a brand new book out. David, dude, this was, I thought I was in for light reading. This was amazing. <laughs> Thank you for writing it. It's the manager's handbook. It should be called uh, the manager and business owner and entrepreneur's manual for running your business. That's what it should be called, but it's not as sexy. So good job on the title. All right, good. We we had we had quite a lot of back and forth about the title, so I I felt like it took longer to pick the title than it did to write the book. <laughs> That's always the case, though, right? So you're trying to bring in as many people as possible with that title. Uh, but let, let's get it started because at the very beginning, you have a question that you asked that got you into these five sections of the book, and I want you to answer answer it because here's a question you asked why are some people better at getting things done and so you you answer that one for me because it's your question oh i was fascinated by it because i you know i for, first of all i had this career as an entrepreneur for many many years and then i was invited to come back to stanford at the business school and be on the faculty there and so that gave me a different sort of perch. And I had been an investor in many companies along the way. And I'm just looking around and it was just clear that some people were just better at getting stuff done. And I got, I became obsessed with a couple of stories. So I thought about Walmart, you know, Sam Walton. I mean, he was surrounded by JCPenney and Target and Kmart. And he's just doing the same thing they're doing, right? And he crushed them. And I was thinking, he didn't, he didn't invent the department store. What's going on here? And then, uh, you know, like a mo more modern day example would be Facebook. You know, we think of Facebook as, you know, this sort of cutting edge thing that, no, they were way behind. 
Um, I think it was Friendster had 50 million users before Facebook. It was backed by Benchmark. I mean, you know, gold-plated, located in Silicon Valley, and Zuckerberg's in his dorm room trying to get dates. Okay. And he crushed him. And, and, and I was looking around saying, okay, like, like what is going on here? Because, because there's something going on besides sort of strategy and being able to see around the corners and so forth. And I just decided I'm going to study the heck out of the people who are really great at getting things done. And I, I didn't have any agenda. I didn't plan on writing a book. I was just fascinated by it. And what I kept seeing over and over again, whether it was, you know, uh, you know, Winston Churchill or Oprah Winfrey or Bill Gates or whatever, they all shared these same five characteristics over and over and over again. And there were no exceptions, Tristan, not a single exception to it. So then I thought, okay, wow, I've, I've, got, I've got an insight here that might be interesting for other people. But then my challenge was, well, who wants to like listen to a, you know, a PowerPoint presentation just saying, hey, there are these five things. So I said, I got to turn it into something that the everyday manager, the person who's trying to lead an organization, whether it's their, you know, their, their veterinary clinic or a big division of General Motors or who, whatever, that they can take it and they can say, okay, well, that's great. That's, I, I, I want to do these same five things. How do I do it? And so the last insight I had was I was listening to someone play the piano. It's my niece. So she's playing the piano mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking, well, how do you learn to play the piano? Well, you learn the difference between a sharp and a flat. You learn what the pedals do. You learn how to have your hands over 81 keys. And it's all these little sub-skills that come together. So I said, well, what if I took those five characteristics and broke them into sub-skills that just about anybody could learn and lay it out for them? Then you've got a, then you've got a manual. And it was something that I didn't find, I'd never found in the bookstores. It was something I wish someone had handed me when I, you know, 30 years ago when I was running something. And so I ended up, I ended up writing the book that I wish someone had handed me 30 years ago. You know, I I felt when I, when I read through it and I didn't just read through it, I kind of, I had to slow down. Like I told you earlier, I had to slow down and be like, wait a second, this is a, this is an actual manual. I couldn't help but think about Jim Collins is built to last. Yeah, I felt like it was almost a continuation and you slowed it down for me. So you're like, well, let me give you the details now. I was like, oh, this is so good. So thank you for that. You, you know, you know, Jim's a, a former colleague of mine at Stanford before he left Stanford. And I did feel like I was building a little bit on his work. So if I can give you one example, you know, one, one of the things he says in his book is, you know, first who, then what? And he also says, figure out who's who you want on the bus. But what Jim didn't do in his book, and I have tremendous ex- respect for him, I just tried to take it a different level. Is he goes, well, well, okay, I, you know, he he pulled together three hundred and eighty four gigabytes of data. I mean, his book and his research is no small endeavor. But he doesn't say how you build a team. Yep. So what I try to do is take stuff like that and say, okay, okay, we're all convinced now you need to, you, people are important. How do you go about it? That was the key, man. That's why I felt they went so well together. As I was looking back, I was like, whoa, this is what was missing. So on that, let me take people through the five things. And then I, I, I want to touch on, on something in there. Uh, number one is commitment to building a team. And number two is fanatical custodian of time. Uh, Number three, willingness to seek and take advice. Number four, setting and adhering to priorities. And number five, an obsession with quality. Um, I wanted to start with what are the three systematic steps to hiring? Because 
in dealing with entrepreneurs, they're always hiring, always, right? And there's just a, an open door, closed door situation. But how? where do we start when it comes to hiring? Well, it starts with recognizing that you know, 19% or only 19% of new hires are reported by their managers as being unequivocal successes. So you start with just saying we're lousy at hiring. Wow. Second thing, though, is, is Tristan, people say, well, okay, you're, it's just the nature of the process. You can't be any better at it. So I got to tell you this quick little story. I went to the bookstore <laughs> and on Amazon and I bought every decent book I could find on hiring. And I told people I'm checked out for this week. And I went in a room and I literally, Tristan, I had a stack of books on one side and I read the books, thousands of pages, literally thousands of pages. And I got it down to, after I took notes, I got it down to about 20 pages and basically nine things to do. A lot of the books were saying the same thing over and over again, which makes sense. I mean, you know, there's, there's no, there shouldn't be that many secrets. So first thing I realized is, oh, wow, I just took like 2,000 pages and turned it into 20 pages. That that by <laughs> itself is a public service, right? That who, is. Who's got time to do that? And then I was running a comp- company at the time that had that was in seven countries. And we had uh, so seven you know senior country managers. And at the time, we had been one for seven in terms of getting people to be successful. And I said, we're going to, I put it all into a program and I said, we're going to try this and we're going to adopt it. And lo and behold, we were seven for seven. And since then, I've realized that, you know, if you're, if you're willing to hire using a process and not say, oh, I rely on gut feel, which honestly is just code word for being lazy. Um, And you hire looking for data, not likability, not intuition, um, you, you know, you know the the author Malcolm Gladwell, right? Yep. So, so in his last book, I think it was his last book. Um, I think it's the Strangers talking talking straight. So he talks about how um, we're really bad at reading people, and he tells a story about Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister of England, and oh, yes. he was yeah. trying to yeah, so yeah, you you know what I'm talking about, and he was trying to flesh out Adolf Hitler, right? Chancellor of Germany. So he gets on a plane and goes to see uh, Adolf Hitler. Neville Chamberlain hated planes. It was a really rare opportunity for him to do it. He went there, he met with Hitler, and he came back and he announced to everybody, everything was fine. And one of the reasons why is he said that he looked Hitler in the eyes and knew he was someone he could trust. And he referenced that the way he shook his hand was a double-handed handshake that he only reserved for good friends. Okay. <laughs> so good. That's yeah. I mean, I mean, it's 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 funny and tragic, right? The the person who got Hitler right the most was Winston Churchill. And so when I heard the story, Malcolm Gladwell was making a different point. But when I when I heard the story, it fits so well into hiring because uh, Winston Churchill never met Adolf Hitler, so all the likability, handshakes, all that stuff didn't matter. He just looked at what he did, and he looked at the data. And the raw data suggested that Hitler was a monster, okay? Well, that's a dramatic story to make the same point, which is there are ways to force a process that that puts guardrails around thinking about likability and how the person shakes their hand, which, which we're all susceptible to, and forces you into a data process that increases your hiring rate dramatically. And by the way, Tristan, 
speeds up the process. So it's not as it's not as if when 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 you look at and by the way, I just curated the best practices of the best people hiring. Okay, this is not you know the world according to David Dodson. I, you know, I was the one who curated the data, but it it actually creates a faster uh, hiring process as well. So when we're looking at the data, what are the key points we should be looking at then? Well, so so for example, uh, you need to have a scorecard, and the scorecard focuses you on saying. These are the outcomes. It starts with outcomes, okay? And 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 these are the outcomes that I want. So I'll, I'll I'll give you a simple example. If you're hiring someone, let's say that they're responsible for your sales, VP of sales, head of sales, whatever, and you don't want you're not looking for someone who's a Stanford MBA. You're not looking for someone who's got 12 years of experience doing this or that. What you want is you want someone who can drive sales by 15% a year. So that's the difference. That's an outcome. You don't care what school they went to. You don't care what they did. You're trying to figure out whether they can drive sales. Okay. And then you ask the question, well, how am I going to know? And so then you create a blueprint on how in the process, whether it's interviewing, what you're going to look for in the resume, the reference checks, how you're going to make that determination. So now you have a mission. You're not going in there for an interview and just chit-chatting with the person and asking them how they're doing. You're saying, I have a mission. I need to know whether this guy's going to drive sales or not. And I have decided that here are good ways to figure out how we're going to drive sales. That's a guardrail. Now, another guardrail is that you interview in teams. Uh, By the way, interviewing in teams speeds up the process, which is really important in today's hiring process. But um, let's say you and I were interviewing somebody. You know, you might say, well, I'm going to lead the interview, which is fine. The senior person is not necessarily the person who leads the interview. In fact, I prefer not to lead the interview because I want to just really study the candidate. And you're doing the questioning. But immediately afterwards, we compare notes and we're checks on each other. OK, so right there, I've said you put a high, you put together a hiring scorecard. And in the book, the manager's handbook, I lay out exactly how you do a scorecard. Yep. Then I lay out not only that you should do team interviewing, but how you structure the team interview. Okay, so so without going through the whole chapter, those are two specific guardrails that anybody can do tomorrow morning, which will greatly change your success rate in hiring. That's very true, man. I was going through and I'm like, wait a second. And I, I was putting myself on the spot because, you know, I'm reading the book and I'm, ah, it's so true. I need to do a better job identifying what's my mission so I can be clear because I, it gets so, sometimes you get so unclear about it when you're reading the resume because you said like oh what school did they go to what experience do they have but but wait a second does that match what your outcome is like what do you want out of this so that that really spoke to me a lot Uh, another piece that really spoke to me because i have a challenge with and i know in talking to other entrepreneurs at a high level have the same challenge here it is coaching underperformance help help me with that david how how do I, where do I start with that? And how do we, how do we get better at that? Yeah. So, you know, there's, you, I break in the manager's handbook, I break it into two different chapters. One is instant performance feedback, which is how you're giving feedback to your, you know, the people that are doing fine, maybe your superstars. And then what do you do when someone's performance is such that their jobs are at risk? And what we generally do is uh, it's unpleasant. It's yucky. We don't like to do it. And so we pretend for many, many months that there's not a problem. All the time. So, yep, exactly. Because it's human. Because it's human. Like we we want to be liked. We want. We don't want to upset people. We don't don't want to deliver bad news. So we have this myth in our mind 
that that if we if we ignore the problem, we're doing the other person a favor when in fact we're doing them a massive disservice. Whether whether you they end up being dismissed or not, which I'll get to. So the so so in the manager's handbook, the first chapter is how do you quickly evaluate whether you really do have an issue or not, and I do it in a way that again kind of gets past all these sort of biases that we have. So I, I have a I have a, a very simple right brain left brain exercise that is pretty much foolproof that you do on your whole staff about twice a year, take you a whopping twenty minutes to do, but nobody does it. And you say, okay, these are the people that I need to be paying attention to. And then it's like a paint by numbers, step-by-step on how you go about laying out for them what the issues are. If it's multiple issues, how you prioritize the issue. So for example, Tristan, let's say that we have someone who works for us and and, and we say, uh, you ask the question, which is kind of articulated in the book, uh, what would have to be true for this person to be an A player? Mm. And that, that is so illuminating, that, that question. And sometimes you go, well, they would have to do da-da-da-da-da. And you go, there is not a chance in the world that's ever going to happen. Okay? <laughs> that's right? funny. You know, sometimes that happens. Or you look at it and you go, you know what? That's probably, I'm not sure that's achievable. But of those four things, one of them is, is much easier than the other. So you start with the first thing. You don't, you don't give them four things and say, by the way, do these four things and do them right away. And if you don't do them right away, you're going to get fired. Say, I'm here to help you succeed. Let's work on one thing. If they fail at the easiest one, you don't have to do the other three. So p- part of, part of you know, one of the things in, in the manager's handbook is a fanatical custodian of time. If you can figure out you have a problem in two hours versus 20 hours, that's a big deal, right? So there's a very mm-hmm. efficient way to see whether the person ha- whether who has a problem or not if you have anyone whether they're what the problem is and how they're and if they're coachable or not and then a process for coaching them okay which is which is actually it's it's a it's a six part formula you do a b c d e because again like you like you said at the start of the podcast Tristan you know this is this is a handbook okay because busy people don't don't have you know they don't want to read two books on how to handle underperformers they want to read 20 pages and get back to their business um yeah. And 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 then it, one of the things that's really important in the end is that there's a thing called the setup to fail syndrome, which is if I came to you and I said, um, you know, we have a performance issue. Here's what needs to happen. I have got to communicate to you that you're not on trial. My job now, having communicated it to you, is do everything I can to help you succeed. Because if you leave the room office thinking that you're just being judged, I have my hands across my chest going, well, we'll see if he makes it or not. Versus if he says, okay, you know, David Dodson said I had a problem. I guess I kind of have to agree with it, but he's on my side. Okay. And then we help you, we help you succeed. And then if you don't, I mean, no surprise to your listeners, there's a chapter on what to do if you have to let someone go. And that, that I think that that's probably the biggest challenge because you mentioned when you when you started this answer that we already know who these people are in our organization, but we just delay it for so long. Yeah, and and I I think it's because we don't know how to approach it. That, that's why I loved that chapter. I was like, oh yeah, dude, this is good. Thank you, thank you for laying that out for me. Well, um, and, and you know, you know, I just want to add that. Um, if someone doesn't have a long-term uh, role in your organization, you're not doing them any favor by telling them eight months from now or two years from now, because mm. they probably know that things are not the way they should be. 
And you're, you're delaying them getting on to their career, getting to the place where they belong, where they can be a superstar and they can use whatever they, whatever their skills are. I mean, I've met so few people that I would say this person is unemployable. No one should ever hire this person. Probably could count that on one hand, even though I've had thousands of employees. Most people are just in the wrong spot. Help them get there. That's a good point, man. I like that outlook. I, I definitely agree with that. When it comes to managing and having a staff, large or small, you're bound to have meetings. I personally, I personally, I'm not a fan of meetings, David. So I loved that you outlined like this is this is what you can do to run better meetings. Can you take me through that, please? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I I don't even need to give you the stats on what people report in terms of the usefulness of meetings. I mean, we uh, n- n- I've never met a human being who said, "Oh yeah, all of my meetings are really efficient, great use." I can't wait for the next meeting. Yeah, and now it's so much worse because we are connected in so many ways. And it was bad, but after the pandemic, it got really worse because we you know now video meetings you can do off your phone. So, and with a couple of clicks of a button, you can add eight attendees instead of the only, instead of three attendees. And so the ease at which we can convene has made things really, really severe. Yeah. And you might say, well, who cares if you waste a little time in meetings? Who cares? That's the most important asset you have is the time of your management team. It is, is I mean, why'd you hire these people? Okay. So it matters a lot. So um, I thought about, well, I wonder who I, w- I wonder what it's like to go into a meeting with Bill Gates. And does he allow the first eight minutes to be wasted? Does he think that it's okay to stroll in late? Does he think it's okay to check your email in the middle of meetings? And of course, the whole thing's laughable. Of course not. Of course. Um, and so I looked at the people who, you know, going back to what we were saying, Tristan, at the beginning, as I as I looked at the people who are really good at getting stuff done and how they run meetings. And there tended to be variation in the particular techniques, but there was not a variation in how they treated the seriousness of a meeting, not just in terms of, I don't want to waste time, but also you bring, you convene people to make really good decisions. And if you can improve your ability to make a good decision in a meeting and do it in a, in a third the time or two thirds the time, that's a big deal. So what I did is I harmonized what I thought were the best practices of, of what I, you know, what I observed to be the top managers and how they ran meetings. And I harmonized it into kind of one formula on how to run a meeting. And I, and I, and, you know, somebody like um, Jeff Bezos, um, he runs when he, the way he runs his meetings is the meetings start. Now this is when he was at Amazon and everybody read the background memo. So you came into the meeting and the first 15 minutes, everybody's sitting there reading the background memo. And it forces to make sure everybody's read the memo, et cetera, et cetera. However, I took that out of the book, Tristan. The reason I did that is I thought, you know what? The truth is nobody's going to do that. Mm -hmm. What I did is I tried to take just the things that I knew that almost everybody would read it and go, you know what? That's brilliant. I can do that tomorrow. I'm not going to get a lot of resistance and I'm going to take my A minus. All right, we'll we'll leave the A plus to Jeff Bezos. I'm I'm just going to try to get my C up to my an A minus. Because I wanted this book to be to to be used. I didn't want it to be, oh, well that's cool, that's theoretical, but I'll never be Steve Jobs, so put that down and I'm going to go back to behaving the way I was behaving the day before. I wanted people to behave differently as a result of reading the book. 
You're trying to make it as easy for us to apply into our businesses, which is what yeah. I love. I, I yeah. mean, you know, you know, one one simple example was that this one, this one, I this is one of the few things I actually uncovered on my own was um, I was in my office and I was just worn out with meetings, not an unusual experience. And I thought, what if all my hour long meetings lasted 40 minutes and all my half hour meetings lasted 20 minutes? Okay. Well, it didn't take, uh, you just look at your calendar. And I went back and I, and I tallied up all my hour long and half hour long meetings. And I did the math and I looked at the, holy smokes. You're not going to believe this. That was eight hours a day that I would save. I'm sorry, a week that I would save. So I said, all right, I'll give it a try. And what I didn't know to expect is that when you set a meeting for 20 minutes, people assume there's some reason it's 20 minutes. So they start on time. They end on time. We get right to business. And, you know, on the, let's say the, literally the 5% of the time where we, where we run out of time, that's fine. Okay. But we just compressed all those meeting times. Wow. So, so, so that I, I like that example because that's the kind of thing that that's in the manager's handbook stuff. You read it and you go, geez, that's pretty easy. I'm going to do that tomorrow. Yeah. Easy. 20 minute meetings done. That, that I love, man. I love that. But if you Talk, want to go over I, 40 minutes on the podcast, we'll do that. I'll give you a little extra. Yeah, well, <laughs> this is different. David, okay? <laughs> no, this is fun. This is good, man. Uh, I, I was towards the end of the book. You, you talk about board of advisors mm-hmm. and I've always had a challenge with that. And, and I've all as well, I've been invited to different boards. So I love, I love the table that you put there. But for those that that don't have the book, can you talk to me about how you would suggest we choose board of advisors and why they're important? Because you give an example about, I think it was, you said while you were at Stanford, you were studying uh, a great entrepreneur who said his dad told him that he should choose not based on on trying to get this person to give him a loan, but instead, having him choose somebody based on his expertise at being yeah. a board. Uh, expand on that, please. Yeah. So the story was uh, this fantastic entrepreneur who's gone on to, to sell his company to a new owner. And he's um, uh, he's tra- created tremendous wealth for his shareholders and himself. And uh, when he was buying this very small company, which he's now built up, um, one of his investors had helped him with a banking relationship. And he had a really good rapport with the person. So this goes in a obviously much different context to Malcolm Gladwell's point about you know, likability and, and the handshake. And so he wanted to have this person on their board. And it was his dad, who was a pretty experienced business person, who said, You're not, you're not you, for a board member, you're not looking for someone who can help you find a banker. You're looking for someone who can help you learn to run your company. And the insight there is that just like you need to have a scorecard for when you're hiring somebody, you need to have a scorecard for your advisors. And uh, so I kind of lay out how you would how you would put together a scorecard for your advisors. Now, finding people for a board is different than hiring people. And so some of the things that we would do, we temper, you're not gonna have a team interview and you're not gonna, but, but there's still elements of that hiring process that you should use for a board of advisors. Because once you put your board together, whether it's an informal board of advisors or a nonprofit or for-profit or whatever, once you put that together, it's very hard to change it. 
you know, I can say, oh, well, I, you know, Margaret's not contributing and I'm going to ask her to roll off the board, but that's a really awkward conversation. Meanwhile, you've got this opportunity cost that for two years you have been, she's been sitting in a seat where, where you could have had someone else contributing. So the stakes are pretty high to getting it right. I also, uh, I, I struggled a little bit with this chapter, Tristan, because I did not want this book to be about the, the audience were just CEOs. Yeah. I really wanted it to be managers. And, and my friends who have, who have now pre-ordered and bought the book are by and large buying the book for themselves, but also because a lot of them are familiar with the book, you know, buying them for their management team as well. Because mm-hmm. um, what, what it's one thing for you, the CEO, or you, the manager of a division to be doing all this stuff right. Imagine the power if your whole company are running meetings well, your whole company is good at hiring, your whole company is good at instant performance feedback. I mean, now you're talking about like step on the gas, crush your competition. So long story short, when I wrote that chapter, I expanded it out for not just the CEO, but also someone who just who 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 may not have a formal board, but still wants to seek and take to be able to reach out to people to seek and take advice. It helps you get it. It helps you get to the right answer faster, and a higher probability that you get to the right answer. You know, on that, two things. One, you said crush the competition. I forgot. There's an extended title, the the subtitle, right? Which is I have it in front of me. Five simple steps to build a team, stay focused, make better decisions, and crush your competition. Which <laughs> which I loved. I didn't expect that at the bottom. I was like, oh, this is good. I like this. Um, so you know, I, I, I talk about uh, you may you may be getting to it, but I talk about uh, you know use of uh, all the digital distractions with you know collaboration tools and so forth. And I think I think I made it into the final version, but I certainly make the point as I said, I said let your competition be the ones that are wasting time on the internet, seeing what rock star died and what the royal family is doing, and being drawn into all of the things that you know, breaking news events, let them waste 90 minutes a day. You have a focused organization that's out there to try to win. And, and, and if you, if you use sort of the sporting analogy, you know, pick whatever your favorite championship team is. Do you think those guys waste time in practice? Uh-uh. They get out there and they're for business because they want to win a Super Bowl. They want to win an NBA championship. They want to win a Stanley cup. That's so true, man. That's very true. And as I was reading this chapter and, and the whole book in general, I kept on thinking that this can be applied not just to managers, but you could take a lot of this and apply it to your personal life. So when I was looking on on this section for board members, I was thinking, you know, we could actually do this for mentors. So we can search out and to find people that can help us be better at certain aspects of our life, not just for business. So when I'm looking at the manager, in essence here, Mm -hmm. How would you suggest that they find people that they can learn from and expand their their business life through and just get advice from? Where do we go and find these people typically? Yeah, I, I'm uh especially for my teaching at Stanford at the business school, I'm 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 asked this a lot. I in fact, in fact, uh one one student this year, um came to me and after we had met and he said at the end of the meeting, he said, would you be my mentor? I thought it was almost like he was asking me out on a date. Um, it was very <laughs> endearing. It was very, he's a wonderful person. It's very endearing. But um, 
identifying mentors is a skill unto, unto itself. And I, I realized that was one of the sub skills of, you know, willingness to seek and take advice. So I talk a little bit about what you look for in an advisor. And so, for example, one of the things is you're looking for a person who's got pattern recognition around the problems you're likely to face. And those are not necessarily the highest credentialed individuals. So, you know, if you have a construction company, for example, or let's say you have, let's say you have a trucking company, um, a better advisor might be a general manager of a um, equipment rental business than the CEO of a media empire located in New York City. Um, and so I encourage people to move away from credentials, identify what are the problems that you are facing that you're trying to solve, and who out there has some pattern recognition, who has 20-year head start on you, who can look at your problem and say, not because they have an higher, higher IQ, but because they've seen the problem before. And I, I, in my class, I reference how you know, the students, the students are all, so it's, it's just graduate school. So all the students have had work experience, they've come back. So they're, you know, they tend to be about 30 years old. But I'll say to them, you know, when you call someone up who's 50 or 60 years old with a problem and you start to describe the problem and you get about 20% into describing the problem and then they interrupt you and they tell you the answer and you're like, ah, that guy's so brilliant. Why, like, I wish I could be like, and, I, and I'm saying the difference is they're just older than you. And everybody chuckles, right? Everybody chuckles. But I'm really making a serious point, which is that they have this pattern recognition around the problems that pertain to your situation. Um, so anyway, I, 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 in, in the manager's handbook, I sort of walk people through how you kind of identify what are the problems you're likely to solve and, and how do you find people that, 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 that would have that pattern recognition. And then I walk, I, I walk people through a step-by-step -step process on how you handle a 15 or 20 minute phone call to get the most advice because I'll, it's, it happens all the time where I'll be meeting with somebody or someone call up, they go, I want to pick your brain on blah, blah, blah. And it's a 20 minute call and we're at the 16 minute mark and they go, so what do you think? So like, I got four minutes and they're going to interrupt me twice. So there's another way to do it so that you end up getting 16 minutes of valuable information, but you have to have a structure around it. And that's what I lay out. Yeah, man, you, you you do lay out a lot of structure, and I like that. I like that you you were making scorecards, and I was like, this is really cool. Just, that's why that's why I was like, oh, I need to uh, do that. I need to do this. Uh, talk to I, me I about my wife crazy when I when I tell her we need to, we need to have a structure for how we're gonna like do grocery shopping, and she says, well, the structure is you need to leave the room. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Honey, we're going to dinner. Hold on, hold on. Let me, let me get a scorecard. <laughs> That's funny, man. Talk to me about uh, the Lake Wobegon effect. Uh, it, I'm pretty sure some people know it. I didn't. I was surprised as I was reading it. I was like, oh, I'd never heard of this. So expand on that and, and how it feeds into confirmation bias. Yeah. So, so the Lake Wobegon effect um, really applies to how we think about how we're doing and then how our customers are feeling about ourselves. So there, there's a Garrison Keillor radio show, which isn't played anymore, but it's on NPR. And it, it was a sort of a humorous uh, radio show about this uh, imaginary uh, town 
in Lake Wobegon. And in the introduction, Garrison Keillor would always say, where all the, all the children are above average students. Well, of course, that can't be right. I mean, half the students have to be above and half have to be low. So it's just a joke. Um, however, around that same time, there was a study done, and I think it was 93%, but it doesn't matter. It, was, it started with a nine, uh, of drivers in the U.S. thought that they were above average drivers. Mm. And of course, that can't be the case. All right. And so they ended up, the, the statisticians ended up calling that the wake, the, the Lake Wobegon effect, which is our ability to exaggerate our own grandness and exaggerate our own um, uh, abilities. And yeah. where it gets, you, you could say, well, that's a, that's kind of a funny, curious thing and who cares, but where it matters is um, let's say how you're evaluating, how you're doing in the marketplace. Now, a Bain study came out and they surveyed, it was a, it was a pretty comprehensive survey. 80% of CEOs felt that they offered a superior product to their customers. 80%. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see what your memory recall is. Cause I know there's a lot of uh, facts in the figures. Do you remember what the, what the customer said? Was it, in the, that was it 19%? No, close 8%. 8%. Okay. So um, I like, think about that. They think 80% of them think they're supplying a, a superior product. Only 8% of their customers happen to agree. Okay. Yeah. So, so, and, and, but, but now you go, oh, well, that's, you know, ha, is that just sort of curious or whatever? No, that's really, really valuable information because mm -hmm. now you as a manager can break out and you go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to find out what my customers really value, how they really think I'm doing. I'm going to let all my competitors um, think that they're doing great. Well, I come in there and I clobber them one at a time. Okay. So then mm -hmm. I say, now, how do you, so, so how do you break the weight, the, the Lake Wobegon effect and find out what your customers really are thinking? And I lay it out on ways that you can find out. And it's not doing a NPS, uh, you know, NPS survey over email where you send it out to 10,000 people and get 200 responses. It, it's, it's a very, very careful, methodical way that I observe from the, again, the very best people who knew how to get things done. One of the ways they knew how to get things done is they knew what their customers were thinking. So that I remember now when I was reading this section, I was thinking, oh, interesting, something different on the NPS score, because I, that's like the going thing right now. A lot of these big corporations are touting their NPS scores. Mm -hmm, Talk mm -hmm. to me about your feeling about the NPS scores and, and what you would rather see instead of that. Yeah. So uh, NPS, for people who aren't familiar with it, stands for Net Promoter Score. So, so call up and you say, um, would, you, would you recommend this podcast or would you recommend this soft drink? And um, if everybody says yes, then the score is 100. If nobody says yes, the score is zero. Or excuse me, negative. It goes, it goes negative, sorry. And um, so, and, and this was an interesting, interesting way to collect some information. And it, it, it was, it was born out of some work at Bain and Capital or, or Bain, Bain and Company, sorry, not Bain Capital, Bain and Company, the consulting company. And, and, and there was some promise there, but the, the first flaw in that is that I was being a little bit flip, but, but I, I'll be, I'll be more specific. Most people who send, who get NPS data, they will send out a questionnaire to, um, their customer base, and they'll end up getting about a five or 10% response rate. 
So first of all, you have what's called a small n problem, n meaning the number of respondents. The second thing is something we can all relate to is when you go into, let's say, an Uber or a Lyft, and at the end, they want you to click how many stars. If you've had a reasonably good experience versus a crappy experience versus a fantastic experience, your response rate is going to be different. Okay. So most of us are just, we just blow off. Everything's fine or whatever, whether it's, doesn't matter whether it's Uber. So you have on top of a a small N, you have the problem that the people who respond tend to be at the extremes. They were really unhappy or really happy. So you're, you're, you're missing what almost all of your customers are really thinking. So my kind of like hero in all this is of all things, drum roll, please. Safe light auto glass. Who would have thought of that, right? I mean, you know, I'm coming out of Silicon Valley. Like, <laughs> yeah. But but the, the safe light auto glass um, coined this term, the power of verbatim. And what they realized is that you have to go out and you have to talk to the customer and hear what they say verbatim. And, and you will not get any of that through mm-hmm. surveys and click one to five or five stars or whatever. And so this is just one of the data collection uh, methodologies that the very, very, very best people know. And, and I love the safe light auto glass story because as a result of when the new CEO came in and he, he took over and he, and he, he talked about the power of verbatim, um, the things that they discovered that their customers wanted that would be impossible to have found out through any survey whatsoever. Um, and they made these changes. And in this prosaic business where you're just replacing chipped auto glass, the company's been growing fast and making a ton of money. And by the way, by the way, I, I'm I'm just forgetting his name. I'm sorry about this, uh, the CEO, but he had his whole career in Safe Light Autoglass in customer facing roles. So if there was ever somebody that you would slot into the CEO role who would say, "Hey, I got it, I got it covered, guys. I know, I know all about my customers. Okay, I've been in sales, I've been in marketing, been on the front line, I've been with Safe Light Autoglass for all these years. I got it covered." Um, mm-hmm. he was the one who said, uh-uh, we're, we need to go out and talk to our customers. Really insightful guy. Is it Rene Cachillo or Cachillo? No. no. All right. I was looking up who the current CEO and president No, no, is. no. He's actually passed away. So. Ah, okay. So yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Dude, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. I see what you're saying. And it goes with, with the rest of the book as well. It reminds me what. Seth Godin was telling me about uh, when I talked to him about the FedEx FedEx people and then Kinko's when they picked up Kinko's. And that was that the guy that started Kinko's, which was Seth's friend, would go would go to store store to store and ask the people that were running it, the managers and saying, hey, what so what's working here that we should be paying attention to? And then he'd go to the next one. Yeah. Sorry, by the way, the guy's name is Tom Feeney. I just remembered. Tom so, Feeney. Yeah. Um, well, that, 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 um, do you remember the book Good to Great? I, I'm not, not, yeah. sorry, good, not good to great. In Search of Excellence. Waterman and Peters wrote the book. Yeah, I haven't read that one, but I know what you're talking okay, about. Okay. It's, it's an old book. It's from, you know, early 1980s. And they were two McKinsey guys who went out and wrote this book. And it was a groundbreaking book. One of the things that they talked about is, is management by walking around. And mm-hmm. to learn what's going on with your customers. Well, I kind of debunk that in this book 
because um, there's two problems with it. There's a uh, one problem is is that the idea that you can just sort of roam around your your, your company and your employees are going to tap you on the shoulder and say, "Hey, boss, I don't, I don't, I've never met you before, and I'm you're five rungs up, and I'm kind of intimidated by you, but I'd like to tell you about something that's that's really dumb that we do." Mm-hmm. No one's going to do that. So it's sort of like this false assurance. Now, in our modern day world, where you've got remote work, like like there's nowhere to there's nowhere to roam around anyway. Okay. And so, so you're even more detached from what your cut, what your employees know that you don't know because they're on the front line. I mean, some you want to know what's going on with your customers. Don't talk to your sales VP. Don't talk to the CFO or, or the VP of operations. Talk to the person that's actually dealing with the customers. Okay, so as a result, um, talking to um, s- other people as well as sort of my own experiences, I developed you know five questions. So, so have some structure around it. If if I'm talking to an employee and I'm, I, I I'm 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 out in the out in the field or I'm on Zoom or whatever, and I say here and I give sort of five magic questions. You ask your employees these five questions, and then of course follow up questions after that. You're going to know a lot. But if you just go there and chit chat with them, you're going to end up talking. You're going to end up finding that their their son's really good in soccer. <laughs> it's like it's like having one of those meetings that we have anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so awesome, man. All right, Dave, why um, why did you decide to do this? Like all of a sudden create this book for, for us? Where did that come from? So, um, you know, I teach, it, I teach at Stanford Business School, so I have plenty of opportunity to deliver this material to Stanford MBAs. But where, where, the, where the drive came from is I wanted to give this information to people who don't have access to gold-plated MBA programs. And I also wanted to completely and utterly debunk the view that entrepreneurs and great leaders have to look a certain way, have to come from a certain background, have to be a certain height, certain religion, race, whatever. And that 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 anybody who wants to put their mind to it can learn to lead and learn to get things done. And so I really wanted to democratize um, the five skills of management. And so that's why I put it in a book. What was the biggest surprise that you've had in in writing this book and now looking back and saying, oh, interesting, or maybe in the process of writing the book? Well, of course, you know, the biggest aha was was stumbling upon the five things. The second thing was breaking it down to subskills, but it was that the obsession with quality. And um, that was, you know, you could say, okay, well, people who know how to get things done, they're good with their time and they can build a team and so forth. But it was this fanaticism about quality that permeated all of the people who were good at getting things done. And so then I just scratched my head. I said, well, is that, you know, is that appropriate for what I'm doing or is that a coincidence? And when I dug down and, 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 and examined it, I realized it absolutely was a requirement to getting things done. And um, so I would say that that was kind of a big, really interesting aha. Also, also the other one was, is all the stuff that I wish I had done 25 years ago that I'm, you know, <laughs> so as I'm writing the book, I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had known that back 25 That's years ago. Funny. Well, now you can help us. So thank you. Exactly. Thank you. you. Oh, I appreciate that, man. This was awesome. Thank you, David. Where do people find out more about you or follow you? Just ask questions. So uh, website, uh, Dave at Dave Uh The book is available for pre-order. 
on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or at your local bookstore. My wife owns an independent bookstore, so I have to like put a little pitch in for independent bookstores. Uh, but it's a manager's handbook and uh, by David Dodson, and I would love to get it in the hands of people. I love that, dude. Where where is the independent? What's the name of the independent bookstore? Like, oh, where, she's gonna love you for this. What it's, is this? This is cool. Hummingbird Hummingbird Books. Okay, Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, and it Hummingbird. is, it, it and it's a wonderful bookstore. And I'm hoping that she reads the manager's handbook because the only person that won't take my advice on management is Wendy. She, she says, look, we're, you're my husband, not my boss. Okay. Uh, that's awesome. Good job, man. Good job. All right. So we're definitely going to go to the website. Everyone order the book, please. This is going to be something that you look back to quite often as you're growing your businesses or have questions. Uh, this is amazing. Thank you for doing this, man. Good to have you. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it. 